HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Jacques Torres, Master Chocolatier, Founder and CEO of Jacques Torres Chocolate, and Head Judge on Netflix baking competition show, Nailed It. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Jacques about his passion for chocolate, becoming a great chocolatier, and we'll hear Jacques' Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia really loved learning from top chefs, especially those with a really great depth of expertise in their field. And she made it her mission to meet them, learn from them, and then pass along that knowledge. She was definitely a fan and proponent of classic French culinary training and invested an enormous amount of time trying to master French pastry. Today, I'm also indulging my own passion as 
there's nothing I love more than chocolate. It's far and away my favorite dessert. So I'm eager to talk to today's guest about his journey from being an actual French pastry chef to becoming America's Mr. Chocolate. Having been lured to the United States from France many years ago by Ritz-Carlton, Jacques rose to prominence as the executive pastry chef at the legendary Le Cirque restaurant in New York. His passion for chocolate led to the creation of his first chocolate store and factory in Brooklyn, the eponymous Jacques Torres Chocolate. A pioneer in the bean-to-bar movement, his chocolate factory has now grown into a chocolate empire. He's written multiple cookbooks on dessert and chocolate, opened a chocolate museum, and is now the head judge on the Netflix baking competition show, Nailed It. We're ready to talk to a real-life Willy Wonka. Welcome to the podcast, Jacques. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you. So let's start with when and where did your passion for chocolate begin? I think that my early memory of chocolate was uh, during the holiday in the south of France, uh, in Bandol. And my mom used to buy those big box of chocolates at the, I don't know, supermarket, where you have more... Most, a lot of space between the chocolates and a lot of uh, packaging. And I remember to hide, you know, somewhere in the home where I can uh, eat chocolates and my mom not telling me to stop eating and pray that the chocolate that I'm going to bite on going to be those caramel and nuts instead of those creamy, sugary uh, flavor chocolate. So when I can find one of those Pauline chocolates, I was in heaven. Uh, then I became a pastry chef. Then I learned to work with chocolate. And I always keep a love for a chocolate, a love of eating it, a lot of working with it, uh, a love to talk about it. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it. So 18 years ago, I opened my first store in Brooklyn, in Dumbo, and uh, and from then the company grew to where we are. And was it very early on when you were a pastry chef that you realized this love, or were you doing pastry and sort of chocolate was equal, or it's that connection you've had since childhood that's always extended it? Oh, I, I have to say that I'm maybe equally in love for pastry than chocolate, uh, but Chocolate was making a lot of sense when uh, when I opened my business uh, in in 2000. There was no many chocolate maker in New York. Uh, the bean to bar movement was barely starting, and uh, there was not that many competition. And I can mechanize chocolate. I cannot mechanize pastry. And um, maybe also I need a change in my career. And this is one of the reasons also why I pick chocolate. I see. So it was a little bit of market opportunity mixed with, with love. Yes. And so what? tell us more. I'm really fascinated because I, while I am a big chocolate lover, I don't know much about the bean-to-bar movement. So can you tell us more about what that is? Basically, bean-to-bar means that you start from the cacao beans, so you buy cacao beans in a, from different location. Uh, Usually, the terroir, the location, the country, going to define the quality and also the test profile of your chocolate. So, if you buy Venezuela or Trinidad, you're going to have floral and 
very high-end cacao beans. If you buy African beans, you're going to get something a little bit more average, uh, less floral, just a good deep flavor of chocolate with not much price. So it really depends on what you want to do. Uh, what percentage? Percentage means how much cacao beans go into your chocolate. So if you pick a 70% cocoa contents, that means that 70% come from the cacao beans. The rest going to be sugar and maybe a little bit of lecithin, a little bit of vanilla for the flavor. So how much does, I think people are familiar with, you know, dark chocolate having a certain percentage of um, pure cocoa, but I think you're talking about other things too, about how the mixture and the quality of chocolate, does that actually, it, it, it sounds like you're saying it ends up affecting the actual flavor, even if you're going for a, a lighter or darker chocolate? Yes. So a lot of things are going to affect the flavor. It's like winemaking. Remember that chocolate is a fermented product. When the pod are harvested, we remove the cacao beans from the inside of the pod and we ferment them between five to seven days fermentation, depending on the moisture and the heat. So after those cacao beans are fermented and the fermentation is going to help to extract all the flavor or accentuate the flavor of the cacao beans. After they are fermented, we're going to dry them. Then when they are dried, they are sent to, to manufacture. Usually in another country, that's where they grow. So when we receive those cacao beans, we go to a process of cleaning, then roasting. The roasting is going to affect the flavor also. So this is the first step that we do into our manufacture and the first step that's going to affect the flavor. Uh, then we're going to put them in a machine called a winnower. The winnower is going to remove the shell from the inside of the cacao bean called the nib. So we, we're going to be left with the nib, which in a way is the most pure form of chocolate or, or cacao. Then we put those nibs to a process to make the chocolate. So they're going to be grind, they're going to be count, we're going to add sugar, maybe a little bit of cocoa butter, sometimes vanilla, sometimes a little bit of uh, lecithin. Then that chocolate goes to another process of tempering, which is aligning the molecule of fat, good crystal molecule of fat. So this way the chocolate is going to shrink from the mold, be very shiny, and have a nice nap. So is the bean-to-bar movement, is that more important for chocolate makers, or is it something that consumers should really be aware of in the way that like ethical coffee harvesting is important? I, I believe that with the, the coffee business, there is a big movement of small growers that offer interesting origin or interesting coffee. It's a little bit the same for chocolate, but the difference there is that the grower doesn't make the chocolate. The grower will grow the cacao beans, and the maker will be a chocolate maker somewhere, like, like in Brooklyn, New York, where they will transform those beans into chocolates and sell them. So for the consumer, you will get a lot of different flavor, a lot of different chocolate. Uh, it's, it's a pretty wide market.
I see. And so in the, so you're actually importing raw or fermented co- co- cacao beans from growers and then making it into chocolate in Brooklyn. Yeah, the chocolate or the beans that you import are usually fermented. It's very rare that people use unfermented beans. Uh, it happens, it happens, but it's, it's a small percentage. Uh, then, when we receive them, we, we, we transform it into chocolate. You have to know that we also, we go a little bit further than Dintubar. We actually, our manufacturer will go from tree to bar, and that means that we have a plantation in uh, Tikul, uh, Mexico, which is in Yucatan, and we have there 5,000 trees, cacao tree, um, that we select what type of tree we have. We kind of preserve some DNA because today a lot of planters, a lot of growers prefer to grow some trees called CCN51, which is an hybrid that will produce between five and eight times more than than a regular tree. Um, mm. Those trees are a little bit lower. They don't need mother tree or shade tree. They, they are a lot easier to work with. They produce more. The cacao pod are a lot bigger. But the problem is that the cacao bean doesn't taste as good as the original tree. So what mm. we grow is actually the original trees, um, Criolo and Finitario and the blend of the two. And we want to preserve that DNA because that DNA today is under attack with a lot of growers who cut those good trees and put some CCN51. And, and that's mostly about the market forces rather than necessarily assault from climate change? I don't think that climate change yet affects much of the grower. It might happen in the future. Uh, but this is a market choice. Basically, what's going on is a lot of bean companies, the, the, the biggest company in chocolates of the world, meaning Hershey, Nestle, Mars, think that we will miss cacao, we will miss cacao beans uh, in the future. So in order to compensate, they work with scientists to find trees that will grow more trees in an acre, and those trees will produce more cacao pod and cacao beans per tree. So this way, the production gets multiplied by five to eight in the same piece of land. I see. So, yeah, that was one of my questions. I was going to ask you how whether the bean-to-bar movement is having an effect on chocolate manufacturers, but it it sounds like they're maybe heading in kind of an opposite direction toward volume. Is that your impression of what's going on? Bean-to-bar is a pretty small production. Uh, I can look up what is the percentage of bean-to-bar sales uh, compared to the rest, but my guess is it's extremely small maybe 1% or 2% of the, of the chocolate itself. And so what's your prognosis for the, the future? Because obviously these big chocolate manufacturers have uh, 
quite a big market share. And and for me, the, the chocolate is sort of egalitarian. Even not so great chocolate tends to still be enjoyable. What's your point of view? It's a little bit like coffee. I believe that there will always be a place for what I will call gourmet chocolate. Uh, small batches, very high quality. And more common chocolate things that you can buy at the supermarket. But you have to understand that less quality cacao beans, more sugar you have to use to compensate the bitterness, the, bitterness, the acidity, the astringent that you're going to find into those cacao beans. Also, quite a bit of manufacture use something called natural flavoring, that's not always coming from the cacao, of course. It's natural flavoring, but has nothing to do with cacao. Um, and, um, and more sugar, less good for you. So, 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 of course, it's less expensive, but it's also not really good for you. Well, that, that makes sense, and that makes me want to ask, in, when you're talking about the kind of... Uh, cacao beans that you grow in Mexico, how how healthy are there? Is chocolate inherently unhealthy? Chocolate is usually healthy. Um, and what I'm going to say is just repeating what I read from scientists. And I am not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't know much about uh, the benefit of chocolate. Or, or There's nothing that I can prove being a chef and not a scientist. But my understanding is that uh, chocolate is good for you, chocolate is good for your mood, and chocolate is even good for your health. And it's a lot of articles out there supporting that theory. And I think what you were just saying is once chocolate is mixed with lots, the more other things it's mixed with, particularly if they're lower quality or really require a huge amount of sugar, is more the realm where it starts becoming less and less good for you. Of course, more sugar. You know, sugar is becoming the the new tobacco. Sugar is the enemy. So we try to use as less sugar as possible, um, still, still having a good product. You know, if, if it's too bitter or too astringent, our clientele doesn't like it either. But if you use very high, high-hand cacao beans, you will be able to use less sugar and still have a very good product. I see. So I, I suspect all of what we talked about might have to do with your decision uh, to open a chocolate museum. Tell us more about that. Why did you do that? Starting as a chocolate maker, then becoming a bean-to-bar chocolate maker, then becoming a tree-to-bar chocolate maker. The only thing missing there is open the, no- <clears throat> open the knowledge of chocolate to my customer and show really the history. That history is so rich. We go back five and a half thousand years all the way to today. Uh, and that history is such amazing. Keep in mind that chocolate, as we know it today, is less than 250 years or 200 years uh, out of five and a half thousand years. So 
chocolate was a drink with no sugar for thousands of years. Then when the cacao beans was imported to Europe, that's when sugar started to appear into the hot chocolate, into the drink. And it's only around the Industrial Revolution that we start to see chocolate that resemble what we have today. And and that's the kind of journey and history that the museum takes you through? Yes, if you come to the museum, you will see from from the Mayan and even before them all the way to, uh, to what we make today. And we have not only the history of the cacao pod, we have some history of the culture. Uh, we go to the drinks of the Mayan, to the drinks that the, the Spanish start to make between the 15 and 1600. Then after that, the drinks that you can find in, in France, in Italy, um, in the Cour Royale. And then when the chocolate start to be a little bit more common, uh, during the that, that, that time where mechanization became common, uh, that's when we start to see a chocolate that resembles what we have today. And is your understanding that for about 4,000 years, the consumption and the, the way people uh, drank it w- w- was pretty similar and, uh, and unchanged? It was really industrialization that helped uh, expand it? Basically, what, what's going on is with chocolate, if you want to have the type of quality that we have today, you need mechanization. You cannot do that by hand. Uh-huh. So this is why the Industrial Revolution brings us chocolate. Also, what we have at the museum, we show how the chocolate is fermented, how the chocolate grows. We have some cacao tree. They are not real cacao tree, but it's a pretty exact duplicate of cacao tree. We explain how many parts it takes to make one kilo of cacao beans and what one kilo of cacao beans is going to give you in cocoa paste and what that 600 grams of cocoa paste going to give you in chocolate. So we go through that whole process of growing, manufacturing, history, and we also have two demonstrations. One where we make the Mayan hot chocolates with no sugar, so you can taste that. And we also have a demonstration of how to make chocolate bonbons, chocolate truffles. So it's a pretty complete journey into the world of chocolate. Well, I just added to my next uh, New York trip list because it sounds like a must visit for anyone who's as obsessed with, well, at least eating chocolate as I am. So that sounds great. If you love chocolate, this is definitely the place to visit. (laughs) All right. You heard it here. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Chef Jacques about his latest projects, including the recent Netflix baking competition series. Nailed it. We'll be right back. We're back in the Foundation's test kitchen with 11-year-old Leo at the stove. After just one lesson on scones, he's memorized the recipe and is baking up homemade treats. If he can do it, you can too. Now scones rise and fall, if you will, on the quality of their ingredients, and the key ones that determine the best flavor are the flour and the butter. One of the best things about scones is they aren't time-consuming or hard to make. They're also great for kids, as the best way to mix them is with your hands. 
Unlike bread, you don't need yeast, and you don't need to wait for the dough to rise. Leo's traditional version adds sugar, milk, and raisins. And on bobsredmill.com, you'll find some exciting recipes, both savory and sweet, from bacon cheddar to cherry oat and even Earl Grey tea flavored. These more elaborate scones call for some exotic flour combinations, such as whole wheat pastry flour, graham flour, and whole grain oat flour, which help boost the nutrition factor. Visit bobsredmill.com today for these recipes and use the discount code JuliusKitchenPod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on their wide range of specialty flours, perfect for baking scones. Welcome back. We're talking to Mr. Chocolate, Jacques Torres, founder and CEO of Jacques Torres Chocolate, about being a real-life Willy Wonka. So now that you're a judge on this Netflix show, Nailed It, which for those who haven't seen it, it challenges amateur bakers to recreate very difficult pastry dishes. And so I wanted to ask you, because it's very entertaining, but it kind of feels like a show that celebrates epic fails more than baking. So what was, what was it that was attractive to you to sign on as a judge? I used to have a show on, on uh, PBS and then on TV Food Network where I was making product. So I was showcasing what a professional with experience can do. Then I opened my business, so I get out of that, and I see the, those shows that start to appear who was based on competition. And some of them are so serious and so, I would say a little bit fake to me, that I stopped, I stopped looking at those shows. And then I, I was approached by, uh, by Netflix to, to be on a show where things are going to be a little bit less serious. We still teach, but basically we have three competitors in front of us. We give them a project that's almost impossible to, to realize in the time that we give them. So most likely they will fail. Then we tell them why they fail, what they do wrong, but in a very happy and fun way. Uh, we basically make fun of them and we laugh the whole time. So it's a light-hearted show uh, with a good spirit. Nobody cry. Uh, we take ourselves seriously, but not too much. Um, the, the host, her name is Nicole Bayer. She's a professional stand-up comedian, and she's wonderful. And presumably, the con- it's a little hard to tell when you see it, but presumably the contestants know that they're facing a rather impossible challenge and have volunteered. Is that right? Yes. It is a challenge. It's, it's, it is reachable. But if you never spend time in the kitchen, it's very hard. And basically, we, we do give $10,000 to the one who's going to fail the last half. <laughs> so so they, they get out of the show with something. They learn something, or they win $10,000, which is not negligible. And what is the $10,000 meant to encourage them in a certain way, or they can use it however they want? Or they can use that money whatever they want. I mean, money is money, and uh, you do whatever you want with it. 
And so for you having, I think you, they've aired one season and you're filming the second, or is it more than that? We, we aired two seasons, and the third season going to start December 7th, so very, very soon. And for you, from doing that experience, very different than the shows you've done in the past, what have you taken, like, do you learn something fun it, from it, or is it more about sort of relating to, to the average baker? What I learned from it is that what we do is not that simple or is not that easy. Uh, but I do try to explain where they fell and how to change the way they did things in order to succeed or to do something a little bit closer to what we ask them. And remember, the cake that we showed them to be duplicated is an example. We ask them to come as close as possible. We know they will not duplicate exactly. And it's some type of a reference to what we want. So they have some, some uh, how to say that, some way of playing a little bit with, with their ingredients and come as close as possible. It doesn't have to be exact. Well, yes, and I was going to pivot to the fact that you're also a, 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 a culinary instructor and that even with someone who's well-trained, uh, I know from experience, if you give three people the same recipe, they, they will not be exact to each other, even if they are trained. So I was curious about your experience, whether pastry actually involves obviously very different skills than, than being a savory chef, but even chocolate work versus baking croissant or something like that, which is very technical, seem quite different skill set. Do you think it's fair that they're lumped together, or what's your teaching experience been? Are some people much better at chocolate work than baking pastry? I think it's, it, everything is come from where do you learn and what do you learn? Chocolate making is a profession in itself. So if you went to a culinary school that specializes in chocolate, um, the skill going to be completely different than going to a pastry school. Now, in France, when you, when you get your degree, your degree is mostly in pastry, but maybe 20% is chocolate. We also do ice cream. We also do candy. And then it's up to you during your career to become a little bit specialized in one or the other. So I'm wondering what your advice is. If you're someone sitting and listening or walking and listening, whatever you're doing, um, and you already know that you're passionate about chocolate and you want to become a chocolatier or confection maker, do you think that having a degree in the pastry arts is important or is that something that if if you already know, you should be doing a different path for chocolate making? I think that your your culinary education is important. A friend of mine in Belgium um, is a savory chef, Dominique Brasson. He works or his test flavors are completely different than what I do because he is a savory chef. I am a pastry chef, so the test profile of my chocolate is going to be way different than him. And then a 100% chocolate maker will also have, again, 
a test profile that's different than, than the two other. So, yes, your culinary education is important, and that's going to define the way that you're going to work. Now, it's very difficult to be a self-taught chocolate maker. It's very technical. Making ganache and those emulsions between fat and water are so complicated. Water movement, uh, what type of sugar do you use, shelf life, uh, cleanless, everything will play into the quality of the product. So I think that you need to learn somewhere at least the basics. Well, that's helpful. Hopefully that guides people. Now, I want to change gears. We've been having a lot of other than uh, talking about nailed it, we've been doing a lot of technical d- discussion, which I personally find very interesting. But um, I want to talk about the fun stuff too. And so I know that you have at your um, at Jacques Torres Chocolate, you have a new holiday collection. And so I was hoping you would tell us about some of your favorites. What what uh, what should people be looking for, depending on their preferences? So we put a lot of work into our chocolate boxes. You have a lot of different flavor. The motto of the company is real is my promise to you. So we are not organic, uh, but everything that we do is real. So if you see raspberry chocolate, we put raspberry into our chocolate. That's simple. Lemon, the same. Coffee, the same. Any flavor comes from the real product. The flavor are strong, and we put a lot of walk into that. So you usually don't have to look at the booklet that tell you what flavor is in what shape. When you bite into the chocolate, you know the flavor. <laughs> Another, or some other product that we do for this year, the collection that we did, include a little Christmas tree, which represents a chocolate that's very popular called the bar, the bar chocolate and nuts. So this tree is built up from chocolate and nuts. We also have a duplicate of a gingerbread house made with chocolate. We have a, a Christmas wreath made out of chocolate, praline, and caramel. And we have a Christmas Santa hat made out of chocolate, of course. So those are the new products. And these are, uh, can you buy them now at the stores? Yes, you buy them now. They're in the store already. We also have a bunch of cookies just for the holidays. Yeah. Oh, do you have special things? Because I've heard about, for those who don't know, you you have some very celebrated chocolate chip cookies. So tell tell us first about um, what's special and unique about your chocolate chip cookies. You know, it's interesting. I, I am a French pastry chef. Uh, I have a title called Best Craftsman in Your Profession in 1986. So I'm pretty expert in pastry. And the funny thing is people will remember me for my cookies, which is something that you can do at home, something so simple. Uh, <laughs> basically, what I do here, I put the best ingredients possible, very good butter, and the best chocolate that I think will work with those cookies, which is the same chocolate that I used to make the bonbon. 
so very high-end chocolate, and I put a lot of it. So, of course, when you bite into those cookies between the, the butter, the caramelized sugar, and the chocolate, they taste good. And yes, and for those who don't know, they they were at times maybe still a sensation. Do you, do you think, now, I hope most Americans know, but I'm not sure, but chocolate chip cookies are definitely very American. Do you think, as, as someone who, who's made your home for quite a while in America, do you think the French should be embracing chocolate chip cookies more than they have been, or do you see that changing? I think that's actually the cookies start to appear in France. It's very different than what we do there. Pastries are pretty high-end, very well-designed, very very clean, very clean-cut. And the cookies is a little bit free-form. So very different than, than the pastry in France. But if you have a very good cookies, it doesn't matter if it's straight up, clean cut, completely round. It doesn't matter if it's good, it's good. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so since today's episode is going to air right around Thanksgiving. Um, I think we all have to know, what dessert do you have for the, for Thanksgiving, or what do you like to serve? I love tradition. I love to, to stay pretty traditional. So, of course, we do uh, some small turkeys that you can use as a place setter, some a little bit bigger that you can put next to your dessert tray, or we make a real-size turkey, which is quite big. And you can put that as the centerpiece of the center of your table. Um, if you don't eat everything, my guess is make some hot chocolate with it. Usually the, the weather is right cold during Thanksgiving, so you can make the hot chocolate and serve that also uh, after your dessert. And so for you and your family, are you, everybody is only allowed a chocolate turkey at the end of the meal? No. I, um, again, I love tradition. So we, we make three different pies. And, and I, I say pie because the shape and, and the way we make them. We make a pecan pie, an, an apple pie with some crumble on top, and we also make a chocolate pie with cookies inside, cookies pieces inside. So those are the relatively traditional pie that we do uh, for the store. At home, I certainly going to make tart, which is a little bit lower. We usually, I usually put some almond cream on the bottom, and I love to make one with apple and to make one with pear. Those food are four foods, and uh, this is the best time to eat them. So simple, simple product, but real to themselves. That all sounds incredibly mouth-watering. Thank you for sharing that with us. All right, after the break, Jacques is going to share his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. 
no, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. So Jacques, what's your Julia moment? I discovered Julia when, um, when I arrived in America, and it was uh, in 1988, 1989. And when I had my TV show, Julia walked with me on my show, and I walked with her on her show uh, in Boston, in her house. And I think that the most, the most um, rem- memorable time is that after walking with her in her house, she was doing a TV show in New York. And one morning, I have a phone call, and it was Julia Child on the phone. And she called us here. She asked to talk to me. And as I was on the phone, she said, I keep making those almonds that you do with me, but they keep turning into caramel. Can you come to the studio and show me again how you do that? So I basically put the coat, jump on my bicycle, cross the park, and go to, to the TV studio. And when I arrived there, she said, you know what, instead of showing me just come on the on the set with me and let let's do that together. So <laughs> I end up doing those caramelized almonds, um, pretty much the way that they are made in the streets of New York, with her. And and this is one of my moments with her. She was not her ego was not so big that she wants to take all the success out of other people. She, she can share that. She can put you in the front. And, um, and she loved to learn. She used to love to learn. And that was, that was beautiful. That's, so is it, I think I heard you right. She tricked you into coming and doing a live TV demo at the last minute? I don't know if she tricked me. I think <laughs> she really was thinking doing that off camera. But when I arrived, she... She decided in a moment, she said, you know what, just come with me. Come with me on the, on the set and let, let's do that together. And again, that, that's a reflection of her sharing, sharing the, 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 the way that, sharing the moment, sharing her celebrity time and, and bring the chefs in front of her and say, look at this guy, he's going to show us how to do that. That's so lovely. Well, thank you very much for sharing that uh, memory with us and and being with us today to talk about chocolate, my favorite subject. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Tell us about your own passion for chocolate. Send us an email or even a voice memo. Contact juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at juliachild on Facebook, at juliachildfoundation, all one word on Instagram, and at juliachildjcf on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at tshulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you want to follow Jacques on social media and have it be all chocolate all the time, his handle is at Jacques Torres. It's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S-T-O-R-R-E-S on Twitter and Instagram and at Jacques Torres Chocolate on Facebook. 
You can find Jacques' new holiday collection on mrchocolate.com. It's mrchocolate.com forward slash collections forward class Christmas. For details about visiting the Choco Story New York Chocolate Museum and Experience with Jacques Torres, go to mrchocolate.com and click on Museum. Help support Inside Julia's Kitchen and Heritage Radio Network this holiday season and have a blast at the same time. The second annual Winter in the Garden Gala is coming up Monday, December 3rd. This taste-around party features food and drink from top chefs and beverage pros from New York City and beyond, plus great music and super-fested vibes in a gorgeous setting at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Get information and tickets at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash gala. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer, Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Give us a review. That'll really help new listeners discover the show. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.